0: Hello and welcome to this inaugural episode of Madison's Notes, a podcast on history, philosophy, law, religion, literature, and so much more. As is fitting and proper, our first guest is none other than Robert P. George, who holds Princeton University's McCormick Chair in Jurisprudence and is the director of the James Madison Program in American Ideals and Institutions. He has served as chairman of the United States Commission on International Religious Freedom, on the President's Council on Bioethics, and as a presidential appointee to the United States Commission on Civil Rights. He has also served as the US member of UNESCO's World Commission on the Ethics of Scientific Knowledge and Technology. He is a former judicial fellow at the Supreme Court of the United States, where he received the Justice Tom C. Clark Award. A graduate of Swarthmore College, he holds MTS and JD degrees from Harvard University and the degrees of DPhil, BCL, DCL, and DLIT from Oxford University. Professor Robert P. George, welcome to Madison's Notes.
1: Thank you, Nino, I'm glad to be on with you. Uh,
0: well, I thought we'd, we'd start at the very beginning. Let's travel back to, to Morgantown, West Virginia, circa 1965. Uh, what would nine or 10 year old Robbie George say? if you told him that he would one day be considered the country, if not the world's, most influential conservative Christian thinker?
1: <laughs> well, look, the uh, the title most influential conservative Christian thinker was uh, given to me by the New York Times. And as you know, I don't believe a word the New York Times says, so I don't think anybody should believe that claim uh, either. Uh, But I'll tell you, uh, uh, my journey uh, from the hills and hollers uh, of West Virginia has been an interesting and unpredictable uh, one. So the nine or 10-year-old me uh, would have been flabbergasted by the thought that uh, he would end up being a scholar, a professor, uh, a teacher, uh, someone interested in uh, the philosophy of law and moral and political philosophy bioethics the relationship of law and religion uh, all the areas in which I teach and uh, uh, work I would have thought in those days that uh, my future was in the world of affairs that I that I might be a lawyer someday or uh, uh, someone involved in uh, business perhaps. Uh, Perhaps someone involved in public life as a politician or, or that kind of thing. I was a pretty good talker even as a nine or ten <laughs> uh, year old, and, and given to those kinds of uh, uh, of ambitions. But I certainly would not, you know, have uh, uh, credited the idea that I would end up uh, in the uh, with the vocation that I in fact have have discerned as a scholar and a teacher. But uh, the world is filled with surprises, our lives go in directions that we never would have imagined and mine is a good example of that.
0: I, I don't have any survey results in front of me, but I, I'm going to, to go out on a limb and say that's probably an atypical childhood for an Ivy League
1: professor. <laughs>
0: um, so I'm, I'm curious, Professor George, how would you say that that, that upbringing has informed or informs uh, the way you approach your work?
1: Uh, well, I'm, I'm sure it does. Uh, I'm sure there are ways that it does that I don't myself understand or, 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 or notice. To some extent, we're all mysteries to ourselves. I think it was Augustine who uh, made that point explicitly, but I think all thoughtful people have some understanding of that. Uh, I grew up in an environment that uh, enabled me regularly to hear and talk with and get to know very, very different sorts of people. Morgantown, West Virginia was the town and is the town where West Virginia University is located, the, the flagship state university. Uh, the other thing in town is coal mining. <laughs> um, my family was not on the university side of things. <laughs> Both of my grandfathers uh, were coal miners, they were immigrants. Um, my father's father from Syria, My uh, mother's dad from Calabria in southern uh, Italy. Uh, they came to this country. Uh, in my paternal grandfather's case, fleeing uh, political Ottoman uh, oppression, political and religious uh, oppression. Uh, and in my maternal grandfather's case, fleeing just the grinding poverty of that part of um, part of Europe. Um, they flur- <coughs> Pardon, pardon me. They flourished here. Um, In my maternal grandfather's case, that meant getting out of the mines, uh, being able to save up enough money after 20 years and more of working in the mines to open a little business, a little grocery uh, business. Um, In my grandfather's case, it didn't mean, uh, my my paternal grandfather's case, it didn't mean escaping the mines. He worked in the mines and on the railroads his entire life, but he was able to raise a family, eight children, five boys, three, three girls, my dad and uh, my uncles and aunts, Uh, and to to have a good life, a life that was free of of oppression. I mean, both of my grandparents experienced the um, prejudices that were uh, pretty rampant in those days, certainly where they uh, were against immigrants, um, foreigners, as they were known, um, people who Came from the sorts of backgrounds that uh, that they represented, but neither of them ever saw that uh, as a defect in America as such. Uh, they were both patriots, believers in what America stood for. Um, if they or when they experienced uh, prejudice or discrimination at the hands of some Americans, they didn't attribute that to America. Certainly not to America's principles. Mm. But rather to a kind of um, falling away by some people uh, uh, from those from those principles. Uh, of course, neither of them had any uh, real education, nor did my grandmothers. Um, I was spared uh, the coal mines, I guess, by World War II because my father was drafted into the uh, army at 18, taken right out of uh, high school, didn't actually finish high school. The, his, his school sent his folks a diploma after he was already uh, uh, off uh, fighting. Uh, so anyway, he, um, uh, he escaped the mines because when he got back uh, from the war, World War II, he served uh, heroically in uh, uh, Normandy and Brittany. Uh, he had other opportunities, not the opportunity, actually, to go to college or university. Uh, I am the first in my family to be university educated or college educated, but to open a little business of his, um, uh, to get a job as a salesman, uh, to um, sort of make the American dream uh, happen. And so I was raised with a much more comfortable life than my uh, father and mother were, not only because they came up during the depression and I, I came up in the 50s and 60s uh, in a time of some uh, prosperity, um, uh, but also because my life was built on uh, their, their success. Um, so uh, growing up in that area with the university in town and the mines Uh, I had lots of opportunities to get to know people with PhDs. In some cases, they were the parents, uh, usually the fathers of of classmates of mine or friends of mine, but also uh, my grandparents' friends and my parents' friends who were coal miners or in businesses or activities that were associated with uh, with mining that, that flourished when the mines flourished and, and, and didn't flourish when the mines weren't uh, 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 flourishing. Uh, I started playing music fairly young at uh, 12 years old or so, and I got to love what I call Appalachian classical music, what other people <laughs> call bluegrass music, bluegrass and mountain uh, music. Uh, as you know, Nino, I'm, I'm a banjo player. I'm pretty serious about my bluegrass right. banjo uh, playing. And um, I'll tell you a little uh, story uh, about the worlds that I was moving in, these diverse worlds. Um, Often on Friday nights, I would play the guitar as an accompanist to folk acts, uh, mostly university students. At the student coffee houses in town this was the coffee house culture of the late 1960s and early 1970s um, there was one uh in the basement of the catholic chaplaincy in town called the potter cellar i played there a lot and one in the uh, uh one that was associated with the pro one of the protestant chapelies uh, chaplaincies and it was called the last resort and i played there pretty frequently as well um, Uh, And so I uh, was mixing with students, and as you can imagine, uh, in the 60s, and especially in the 70s, which is when the 60s happened in West Virginia in the 70s, uh, I was mixing with a lot of people with long hair and uh, (laughs) uh, left-wing attitudes and beliefs, and uh, uh, they were very different uh, from uh, my parents' friends and my grandparents' friends'. Uh, very different from people in the coal mining industry and associated uh, lines of work. But then often on a Saturday night, I would be playing the banjo at a a local fire hall or rod and gun club where there might be a country dance uh, where I was playing with coal miners or people who, who worked in associated industries. Um, who played country music and bluegrass uh, music uh, and where a kid who could play the banjo uh, could pick up $20, which believe me, Nino, in those days was a fortune uh, playing, uh, playing uh, uh, a dance uh, or an event. So um, uh, sometimes, uh, and this was of course the period of the Vietnam War, which had polarized the country. And as you can imagine, the, the students I mixed with in the coffee houses were on one side of all of that. <laughs> and the miners that I mixed with at the rod and gun clubs and fire halls and so forth were on the other side of that. Right. So this was my exposure to hearing both points of view <laughs> uh, represented. But uh, I was never tempted, I guess it must be the way I was brought up, to suppose that because um, some people had uh, fancier educations or had formal educations and even had PhDs, that uh, they must be right and the people who did not have good educations maybe hadn't even finished high school uh, were coal miners or the children of coal miners had to be wrong. Uh, I was never tempted to believe uh, such a thing. So I guess my... um, sense of the importance of trying to resolve issues in my own mind on the merits and not on the basis of tribalism, because I'm not sure what tribe I belong to, <laughs> uh, not on the basis of um, of um, authority, uh, uh, at least the kind of authority that uh, people sometimes defer to when they defer to people who have PhDs <laughs> um, or anything anything like that. Uh, there there were some respects in which I was kind of tribal, I suppose, I have to admit. Um, my family was a strong democratic and union family. And as you can imagine, coal miners, right? right? I mean, gosh, the union, we believed the union. We loved the union. We trusted the union. The union was for the miner. The union was for the little guy. Same for the Democratic Party. Um, the Holy Trinity in the family in which I grew up was Franklin Delano. It was, well, Jesus Christ, he did come first. Jesus Christ. <laughs> Franklin Delano Roosevelt was a close (laughs) name, and John L. Lewis, the mine workers uh, union leader who led the the miners out on strike during during a war, which was really an astonishing uh, and bold and controversial uh, thing to do. So, um, So we had divided the world up, our tribe had divided the world up into the good guys and the bad guys and the good guys were the little guys, the working guys, the coal miners the Democrats, the union people, and the bad guys. And uh, the bad guys were the Republicans. Um, uh, not only did we not like the Republicans, we didn't know any. <laughs> they, they all lived, they owned the mines and lived out of state. Uh, we worked or our parents or our grandparents uh, uh, worked in the mines. Uh, later, uh, uh, I learned things were much more complicated than I had imagined. The union wasn't nearly as virtuous, uh, as, uh, as I, as I thought that became clear when, um, uh, uh, I must've been about well, 11, 12, 13 years old, uh, when, um, the evidence, uh, was produced that the leader of the United Mine Workers Union, a guy named Tony Boyle had, literally arranged the murder of his competitor, mm. a reform candidate named Jock uh, Yablonski. Uh, yeah, uh, and boy, when they lifted up that rug, uh, the vermin and insects uh, under, under it were really something to see. And uh, really all of us realized that uh, this faith we had had in the union was uh, really badly misplaced, that the union bosses were in it for the union bosses, uh, not, not for the minor um so you know things got more complicated and less black and white as i grew up and and learned more anyway that's uh that's my background it was a, it was a wonderful boyhood nino you, know, uh, you know hunting and fi- it's appalachia hunting fishing right playing bluegrass uh bluegrass uh music it was a world so different from the one where i spend most of my time today but a world that you know had its faults, no question about that. And it certainly had its hardships for many people, not not for me. Fortunately, I, I, I was blessed and I never suffered material want, but a lot of people I knew did. Mm. And um, I had um, uh, the opportunity, uh, if that's what you call it, to get to know what it was like for poor people, because we had plenty of poor people around us and we knew them and um, I had a sense of, of, of what that was like. Appalachian poverty is different from the kind of urban poverty that gets most of the focus in public policy discussions, but it's real poverty. And in, in, in some particulars, worse poverty, not all, but in some worse. Um, so that was an important part of my, uh, uh, my, my formation. Part of my early political formation was the belief that we've really got to do something about poverty. My, my sense, which I really picked up strongly from my father and my grandfather, on my my father's father, that, that, that having poverty was just wrong and something had to be done about it. I always believed that, always believed that strongly. Um, and so originally, like my whole family, I thought great society programs like those being proposed by Lyndon Johnson were a wonderful idea. And here now the government is finally doing something about it. Right. But it became pretty clear to me just from direct observation, Fairly quickly, that not only were many of those programs misguided, misconceived, not working, uh, some were actually harming the people that they uh, were supposed to be helping. I'm sure they were well intentioned, sure. but they they weren't working, and that started to get me thinking about the political ideology, the tribe uh, in which I had uh, been been brought up, and got me thinking and reading about alternative approaches to problems like poverty so when i got to college i found myself i discovered uh, and found myself reading uh, the journal of the public interest which had a very different uh, and i thought really interesting and in many ways compelling perspective um, on these things and so that together with my convictions about the sanctity of human life and the injustice of abortion started moving me in um, politically what would be regarded as a more conservative direction. Although I must add here that on the pro-life issue, even as late as the mid-70s, late 70s, that was not a liberal versus conservative issue. There were plenty of pro-life Democrats. Most of the (laughs) Democrats I knew were strongly pro-life. There were many pro-life liberals, as we called them in those days, progressives, I guess you'd say today. It hadn't yet broken out so that... um, so that the conservatives were the pro-life people and the uh, uh, progressives were the people who favored abortion and its funding. Uh, that, came, uh, that came later. But in any event, it was, it was those issues that really got me sort of moving in a direction different from the one in which the Democratic Party and the progressive movement went.
0: And uh, when did you decide and how did you come to the decision that you wanted to pursue this, this intellectual life, that you wanted to be a philosopher and a teacher and to enter this world that had been in so many ways so different from the one you grew up in?
1: In hindsight, Nino, you know, uh, retrospectively, I can now say it was my encounter with the philosopher Plato in a political theory course that I took, a general survey course. Uh, it was a fine course. It was taught by a good professor, but not an especially remarkable course. It was just general survey course. The professor was introducing us at a fairly uh, superficial level to a whole lot of thinkers. So we got our feet wet, uh, including Plato. Uh, we read Plato's dialogue, Gorgias. And uh, that was, I now see, uh, a seminal, event in my intellectual life and put me on the road to my vocation as a scholar and teacher. I, I didn't know that at the time, but it fundamentally altered my attitude toward truth-seeking, uh, toward the enterprise of learning. Uh, like lots of kids brought up, um, as I was, from um, backgrounds where you know, we didn't have a lot of education. Uh, and where uh, we weren't wealthy. Um, I had been brought up to think of education, of, of, of learning, mostly as something instrumentally valuable. In other words, something that, that was good and that should be pursued and you should get as much of it as you can. But why? Because it enables you to rise in the world.
0: Right.
1: Better income, higher status, a profession. You can be a lawyer, you can be a doctor, you can be an accountant. Um, uh, be, be an influential person. Be a person who mattered. Uh, it's a standard story, I think, in a nation of immigrants, and especially with when 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 a lot of people, uh, as immigrants, come um, for, without a lot of money, uh, and they want their kids to do better. My my parents wanted us to be better educated than them. They wanted us to have better incomes. They wanted us uh, by us, I mean, my four brothers and I, uh, or five five kids, all boys. Um, uh, they wanted us to rise up in terms of socioeconomic status. And, and it's just what I took for granted as the point of education. It, nobody had ever told me differently until I met Plato. And in that dialogue, of course, if you know it, uh, Plato leads us through his character Socrates, who's engaging as he does in most of the dialogues with the sophists, um, who've got a very instrumentalist view of knowledge. <laughs> uh, Plato leads us to see that the basic, the most fundamental reason we pursue knowledge, seek truth, engage in dialogue, in discussion, in debate, is not for victory, not for social status, not for any end extrinsic to knowledge to which knowledge or dialogue is, is a means, but rather for the sake of truth considered as something intrinsically enriching of human beings, intrinsically valuable, intrinsically worthwhile, not a mere means to some other end, but as something valuable in itself. Well, as soon as, as soon as it was pointed out to me, as it were, as soon as Plato led me through the exercise, um, of seeing that, that, that leads to the conclusion, which I think is correct that, knowledge is a fundamental, irreducible, intrinsic aspect of our well-being and fulfillment as human beings, I could see it. And I had to then, it seemed to me, rethink everything. This is so fundamental a shift that everything is now on the table. Mm -hmm. So I suddenly found myself at, what was I, maybe 19, uh, I suddenly found myself examining as if anew, as if for the first time, um, beliefs, religious political moral social cultural that i had held for most of my life that i had in many cases simply inherited if not inherited from my parents absorbed from the culture or one of the subcultures in which i uh, was uh had, had led my led my life um and interestingly um some of my beliefs uh, as a result of the examination were reinforced or uh, even um uh, really fortified. Uh, Others I decided were wrong um, and had to be changed. And so it put me on a certain uh, path, but most fundamentally it made me fall in love with truth seeking, with pursuing knowledge for its own sake, just wanting to know the truth about things. And again, although I didn't see it just at the time, it wasn't long before I found myself wanting to do it professionally, wanting to make it my career, or I keep using this word, but it's a much better word because it's more accurate than career or even profession, vocation. It's what I was meant to do, what I was called to do, where my own fulfillment could be found, uh, where my best talents could be used, uh, where I could make a contribution. And so, uh, I got really interested in philosophy, especially the philosophy of law and related areas, such as moral and political philosophy. Uh, and when I was finishing up college at Swarthmore, uh, I decided that uh, the first thing I would do was go to law school, but not now with a view to, to practicing law, although I hadn't excluded it completely. But that really wasn't so much my motivation. It was an opportunity to deepen my understanding of law. because hmm. I'd become so interested in philosophy of law. And there was a particular set of issues in college in the area of philosophy of law that fascinated me. And that was that complex set of issues about the relationship of law and morality. The, 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 how do we judge laws to be just or unjust? How is law itself justified? what justifies law when law is unjustified and when are we justified in breaking the law? The sorts of questions uh, one encounters in Martin Luther King's letter from Birmingham jail, for example. So I thought, well, I just want to keep studying this. So I thought, why need to learn more about law? So if I went to law school while I was there, I had an opportunity. It was at Harvard. I had an opportunity to get a master's degree in theology at the same time. And there I was Interested not so much in theology generally as I was in medieval philosophy and what that, what that uh, 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 opportunity made available to me was the chance to take a lot of courses um, in medieval philosophy where I could, where I could study the medieval thinkers on questions of philosophy of law and moral and political uh, philosophy, not just, not just Christian thinkers uh, like Aquinas, who were of course very important to me, but, but also uh, the great Muslim and Jewish medieval uh, uh, thinkers. And so when I um, finished there, although I uh, did experience the temptation to practice law, and that was because of two things. One, uh, my summer jobs with law firms uh, were very fulfilling. Uh, to my surprise, I liked the work. I really enjoyed the work. I worked three summers, uh, uh, the summer after each year in law school uh, at Boston firms, at big, important, prestigious Boston law firms. The third was Halendor, at the time the largest firm in the, in, the, in the city. I was there in the real estate uh, department. Uh, and and Halendor made me an offer uh, as an associate to begin uh, a career as a as practitioner, as a lawyer. And that did tempt me. The, I, I said there were a couple of things. One, one was that I found the work fulfilling. The other thing is I was making more money than I had ever seen before in my life. You know, I. Those golden handcuffs. I, whoa, boy! You know, uh, that was uh, was one thing to be making twenty dollars playing for a, a square dance uh, on a Saturday night. Uh, you know, in Fairmont, West Virginia, uh, it was another thing to be making the kind of money I was making at, at Hale and Door. But uh, I resisted the temptation I uh, had applied to Oxford University, which uh, was at that point just the mecca in the field of philosophy of law. The greatest uh, figures of the uh, mid-20th century were all there. Uh, H.L.A. Hart, uh, Ronald Dworkin, John Finnis, Joseph Raz. Uh, And so I I applied there and and was accepted. And I did experience that moment of temptation where I thought, you know, maybe I should decline the Oxford uh, uh, doctoral uh, uh, admission, and just stay here and work this firm with these great people, doing this really interesting work and making a ton of dough. Uh, but I did, in the end, resist the temptation, which I'm very glad about, very grateful to God, who ever rescued me there, <laughs> uh, uh, and uh, and headed off to Oxford, which proved to be the mecca. I, I had such a wonderful experience there. The scholars um were fantastic Uh, my tutors joseph raz and john finnis or my supervisors for my doctorate were were spectacular i learned so much from them Uh, not just in terms of um ideas about philosophy of law but but by their example of how you do philosophy Mm. and what it means to be a scholar the the rigor that we need to demand of ourselves of our own thinking the way we engage with others in a truly truth-seeking uh manner and I uh, had the opportunity to uh, uh, encounter so many great figures in the philosophy of law, including H.L.A. Hart, who was really the person who revived uh, the analytic approach to the philosophy of law in the um, uh, 1950s and early uh, 1960s, and is sort of the refounder of modern uh, philosophy of law, at least in the analytic uh tradition I, I had actually studied with ronald dworkin at harvard he had been a visiting professor in the philosophy department there when i was in the law school and i uh, uh took a couple of his uh courses uh at that time but i was also able to sit in uh when i got to oxford on seminars that he was conducting together with professors finnis and raz and and frequently uh professor hart would uh, come along he was very elderly at the time he, he he didn't speak very often occasionally he would but it was wonderful to have the opportunity uh, to just experience um, being with him in a seminar. So uh, that's, that's how um, I ended up doing what I'm doing. Um, when, I, when I was um, three years, I guess, into my doctoral uh, study, it wasn't yet too far along on the dissertation, but I was about three years in, when uh, a former professor of mine at uh, Swarthmore, Charles Bytes, who had been a graduate student at Princeton and who's now my colleague at Princeton, <laughs> he came back to Princeton after I uh, had started on the faculty, wrote to me uh, to tell me that he had heard that I had gone on for advanced study in philosophy of law and that Princeton was um, uh, seeking to hire someone in this general area and uh, had unsuccessfully searched for several years. They'd, they'd interviewed quite a number of candidates, but uh, no one had uh, had gotten the offer uh, so he uh suggested that if i was at all interested i should i should uh write to uh the chairman of the department of politics and let him know about myself which i which i did and then i was invited for an interview and uh, ended up getting the job so my one and only job uh, has been, has been <laughs> at princeton i came right out of uh, graduate school i've been a visiting professor on several occasions at, at harvard law school but my my full-time regular position has been at princeton since I uh, left Oxford in uh, in 1985, and I love what I do.
0: Tell us a little bit about our institutions of higher education. What are they there for? Truth um, seeking.
1: Truth uh, seeking. You know, that's what they're there for. That's what they exist for. Now they do lots of other things: athletics, drama, the arts more generally. Uh, they obviously provide wonderful social opportunities for, uh, students. Uh, they help students to get jobs, uh, place like Princeton, of course, a very powerful, prestigious credential, valuable, uh, for career purposes. No question about that. And, and I don't disdain any of that. Uh, I, uh, I, I get it. And as long as people use the prestige of their Princeton degree to do good things, I'm, I'm happy about that. But all of that is derivative and secondary. The primary uh, constitutive point, the defining purpose of the university is truth seeking. So uh, as a late former colleague of mine, Marian Levy, from the sociology department at Princeton used to say, universities exist really for three purposes. The pursuit of truth, knowledge of the truth, the pursuit, that is, of knowledge. The preservation of knowledge when we have attained it. Doesn't mean it's not open to question. Should always be open to question. But we don't want to slide away. <laughs> you know? And then third, the transmission of knowledge. That's the teaching mission, which is not just a matter of putting information into the young people's heads. That's, that's not the transmission of knowledge. It's forming young people as truth seekers and giving them the tools, the intellectual tools, as well as the virtues, personal virtues, that are needed to be truth seekers and lifelong learners. So that's it, the pursuit of knowledge of the truth, the, the preservation of knowledge once we've achieved it, and the transmission of knowledge. Anything else that universities do To the extent that it interferes with those three things, it needs to reform or it should stop doing. If athletics gets out of control and is um, uh, leading the university away from its truth-seeking, knowledge-seeking mission, then reform athletics or get rid of them. Same with uh, even something like social justice. It's it's great for kids to be interested in justice and activism. That's fine, that's fine. As long as they do it in a critical spirit, self-critical spirit, spirit of humility, understanding they might be wrong, not believing in what they believe dogmatically to the point where they won't allow other people to question or they shut down people's free speech or whatever, that's fine. I have no problem with promoting justice. But if social justice becomes something that impedes the truth-seeking mission of the university, which is exactly what happens when in the name of social justice, we try to do things like shut down freedom of speech, then we gotta stop. Then then it's not good. Then it's not acceptable. That is not the mission of the university. The university's mission is truth-seeking.
0: Obviously this pursuit of truth begins with the expectation or the understanding that there is indeed truth that can be known, not his truth or her truth, but truth simply. Uh, That's
1: exactly right.
0: There's a moral relativism that says that's bunk. There is no objective universal truth that can be pursued or known. So what does that relativism do to the university? Does it not render the entire project
1: loot? It's corrosive of the values uh, that the university has to honor and exemplify if it's to fulfill its mission uh, of pursuing truth, transmitting truth, preserving truth. Now, having said that, it's very important that the challenge from relativism or subjectivism or skepticism be engaged in it. We shouldn't rule those positions out of bounds in advance. If they're wrong, we should be able to say why they're wrong. We should try to understand why they're wrong. Now, of course, there's an obvious and direct self-refuting quality to the claim that there is no such thing as truth, or to the claim that all truth is relative. Because obviously such claims are themselves assertions that are contradicted in the act of asserting them. And contradictory theses ought not to be held, self-contradictory propositions ought uh, ought not to be held. But I don't want to shut down the speech or the inquiry or the challenges from anybody, including people who say there's no such thing as truth, there's just your truth, there's my truth and so forth and so on. Let's engage it. What I don't want is the dogmatic assertion that there's no truth. That is deeply corrosive of the mission of the university. And to the extent that people uh, come to uh, believe it, its effect on them, is to turn people into ideologues. It, far from making people more tolerant, it doesn't. Sometimes relativism is promoted in the name of tolerance. What a profound mistake that is! It turns people into dogmatists because you know then their feelings are all there are for them. Right. Then you know that and and who's to who's to ask somebody not to act on their feelings, whether they're feelings of um, that are whether their benevolent feelings or hostile uh, uh, feelings. Uh, also, just on the merits, the idea philosophically that uh, there's no such thing as truth, they're just your truth and my truth, uh, is not only in the end, self, or not even in the end, in the beginning, from the beginning, self-defeating and, and, and corrosive. Um, it's, it's just a really dumb idea. It, uh, it, there's no solid intellectual basis for it. How it came to have for a long time the um, status and prestige that it enjoyed uh, for quite a long time beats me um, since it's so obviously um, misguided. Mm. But um, there it is. Now, Nino, um, as you know, I have um, been fairly critical of President Trump from the <laughs> beginning, but I have to credit him because it seems to be his rise and election that has persuaded so many of my academic colleagues who used to say things like there is no such thing as truth. There's just your truth and my truth. President Trump seems to have persuaded them that in fact that's not true, that uh, there is absolute truth and that we have to be dedicated to the truth and the truth really matters and there's not just, there's not just opinion. Right. There is truth and we should form our opinions and view the truth and we should tell the truth and we should condemn people who don't tell the truth. So I have to say, you know, kudos to President <laughs> Trump. I got a lot of problems with the guy, but he seems to have had a very positive impact on uh, uh, some of my colleagues when it comes to the question of whether there's actually objective truth. Well, let's um
0: let's turn to, to free speech and academic freedom. And I'd like to, to get you to speak on it from two different sides. Uh, First, if you could explain why it is that you think this academic freedom and free speech is so important to the truth-seeking mission. And secondly, if it is so important, why is it that it seems always to be under siege?
1: Well, from the very beginning of the academic enterprise, that is from Plato's academy, his school, uh, serious people have understood that the way we get at the truth when we don't know the truth is to consider the reasons for holding or not holding a particular belief about whatever the subject matter is. The reasons to support a particular proposition and those to oppose it or reject it. Um, That method is called the dialectical method. And it really is the correct method because it's the one that works. Here for once, you'll hear me be a pragmatist. (laughs) (laughs) I want the truth-seeking method that works at achieving truth. And the dialectical method is the proven truth-seeking method. Now, it's sometimes a method that we carry on just within our own heads. We, We don't need an interlocutor. Sometimes we're just trying to think something through. Something's been... Uh, uh, on our minds. We're considering whether this is true or false. And the way we think it through is we say, well, what are the reasons for thinking it true? And we, we think through those. And what are the reasons for thinking it false? And we think through those. And, and we sort it out and figure out where we think the truth lies. Uh, but of course, much of the time we have interlocutors. We have people we're engaging with. We're having discussions, dialogues, even debates with. And that's good. That's a good thing for the truth seeking mission when people coming from different perspectives, having different backgrounds, bringing different ideas, having different experiences come together and engage, especially when they disagree, and then exchange reasons and arguments. There's a proper currency, Nino, you know, of intellectual discourse, whether we're in the, in, in the academic world or more generally. Anytime intellectual discourse is the thing, there's a proper currency. And that currency consists of evidence, reasons, and arguments. They're, they're like the dollars and cents you know, uh, of, a, of, a, of, an, of a, an economic currency. Um, and we, we make progress, we proceed by exchanging reasons. Now, for the dialectical method to work the interlocutors need to be truth seekers they need to be people who really want to know the truth but sometimes in fact regrettably often our desire for the truth has a competitor or two (laughs) That is motivations for us not really to want to know the truth or to value something above the truth that might be placed in jeopardy by the truth. Sometimes in fact, regrettably often we human beings, frail fallible creatures that we are fall so deeply in love with our opinions. We become so attached to them often because of tribal connections, because this is what our group or tribe or clan holds. Um, Uh, this is central to our identity uh so often people are so emotionally invested in their opinions so deeply in love with their opinions that they love opinion more than truth Mm -hmm. they value their opinions more than truth so they don't don't actually come to the dialectical process with a desire for the truth and when they don't then debate or argument just becomes combat it's, it's just rhetoric in the modern pejorative sense of that term. There's a nobler, ancient sense of the term rhetoric, which I wish we could recover, but you know what I mean when I'm referring to the modern pejorative sense of rhetoric. We're just playing games with each other. We're just arguing for victory or trying to advance a cause we happen to believe in passionately. The way I sometimes put it, uh, and I think this is this is true, is that we human beings tend to wrap our emotions more or less tightly around our convictions now that 's not in in itself bad um, it it 's important in fact that we have some emotional commitment to our convictions because that 's what enables us to act on the basis of our convictions it makes them salient for our action you know getting the getting the kids fed and 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 off to school uh you know, ful- fulfilling your 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 job uh, obligations uh fighting for for a good cause or at least a cause that you 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 think is good it's important that we have some emotional attachment that we wrap our our emotions uh, somewhat tightly around our convictions the problem you know is when we wrap them so tightly that we're unwilling to be challenged or to consider that we might be wrong mm-hmm. when we when we no longer have The virtue of intellectual humility Mm. that enables us to be open to truths when, in fact, we might be wrong, that enables us to be open to challenges. When we wrap our emotions too tightly around our convictions, we become dogmatists, we become uh, dogmatists, we become dogmatic, we become ideologues, not truth seekers. And when we fall into that trap, The temptation when we get any power, including power in an institution like a university, the temptation is to try to shut down our enemies, not let them speak, not let them challenge us. We don't want our deeply held, cherished, identity forming convictions to be challenged by somebody. But a real truth seeker wants to be unsettled. Cornel West says this so beautifully, he says the whole point of education is to unsettle us That's what a good teacher does. It's what I try to do. It's what Brother Cornell tries to do Um, with our students. we, We try to unsettle them. We want them to have the experience I described to you and to our listeners as having when I encountered Plato. It's not one that I went in there seeking. I didn't even know such an experience was possible. But I want to reproduce something like that experience in students by unsettling them so that they're forced to think. And not just to go with our emotions or feelings or tribal allegiances. Thinking is the thing. The motto of the James Madison program, as you know, Nino, is to think deeply, think critically, and think for yourself. That means being willing not only to challenge others, but to be challenged. That means having the humility and the courage to subject your views to scrutiny with the knowledge that it might mean I have to change them no matter how deeply invested and emotionally attached I am to them. That's what it's all about. You you cannot do what we're supposed to be doing in universities. We cannot pursue the truth-seeking mission without the freedom to challenge and to be challenged, without the virtues of humility and courage that are necessary if we're to seriously consider the possibility about this or that or any issue, no matter how important, that we might actually be wrong. We need to listen to the arguments on the other side.
0: What you're describing would require a pretty serious store of courage, like you said, Uh, the courage to to challenge someone, the courage also to be challenged and have your deepest convictions challenged. Today, you're a tenured professor with an international reputation at one of the nation's preeminent universities. Uh, It may be easier for you to speak up, not easy, certainly, but easier, Uh, but you weren't always in the situation you are today. Were there ever moments when you thought, you know, boy, maybe I maybe I ought to just sit this one out?
1: <laughs> I'll put it to you this way, know, There were moments when my uh, loved ones and uh, strongest supporters and best friends thought I should sit this one out. <laughs> uh, but temperamentally, uh, you and I now know each other pretty well. Uh, you know that temperamentally, I am no more capable of that, Nino, than you are. I, I see a lot of the young me in you, and so you—you uh, you know what I'm telling you, what I'm saying. When I say temperamentally, I can't—I uh, can't sit them out. Uh, if I think something, I can't help myself uh, uh, from saying it. Uh, and yeah, sometimes uh, in the current milieu, unfortunately, uh, a lot of times, uh, if you challenge prevailing dogmas on campuses, uh, the the reigning orthodoxies, uh, you can get in trouble and uh, people will try to cancel you and people will defame you and people will try to get you fired and, you know, all that, all that stuff. But um, uh, I've never uh, experienced any real temptation to hide my uh, opinions. I'm not, I'm not capable of it temperamentally as I, as I say, and and fortunately I um, uh, have not experienced the kind of fear that uh, other people um, uh, have experienced nor nor have I suffered the consequences that that many uh, people who do dissent from publicly dissent from uh, secular progressive orthodoxies like those that are dominant at most campuses, including ours. I've I've never been punished uh, in the way some dissenters from those orthodoxies have been have been punished. So I consider that I'm a fortunate and blessed man um, in those respects. Uh, but I think back to when I was coming up for tenure and. Uh, my beloved friend and strong supporter, uh, Mary Ann Glendon, pleaded with me uh, to keep my mouth shut about controversial issues as I was uh, preparing for and going through the, the tenure process. And uh, when I didn't do that, uh, the poor woman was uh, beside herself with anxiety over me. Uh, as, as I said, I grew up in a family of uh, all boys, five boys. And I never had a big sister uh, until uh, Professor Glendon came into my, into my life. So she was my big sister. And boy, my big sister was suffering a lot more than I was when I was going through the, uh, the, the tenure process. Uh, but it all came out all right. Good. We're
0: glad that it did. Uh, So so what would you say to a a first-year professor or college freshman or a second-semester graduating senior just trying to finish up work and get out of there who asks, well, why can't I? You know, I don't have the temperament that you do, Professor George. Why can't I just keep my head down, go about my business, not get anyone's
1: way? Because that's not being true to yourself, and that's being unfaithful to the mission that you sign up for when you attend a university. You're part of the university. You're an integral part of the university if you're a student. Uh, Its mission is your mission. You have an obligation to be a truth seeker. And that's gonna take humility and that's gonna take courage. Uh, It's gonna take courage because other people are gonna be hard on you if you dissent. But it's gonna take courage often in because you're facing yourself and and you don't want to be unsettled. You're comfortable in your beliefs. But the point of the university is to make you uncomfortable and you're being asked and you should be asked to cooperate in being unsettled, as Cornell says. Uh, so that's the deal. That's the deal. It's what you signed up for. Um, if, if this is not what you want to do, don't go somewhere else. But But don't contribute even implicitly to the corruption of of the of of the universities i know this strikes a lot of people as crazy um they think well look in this society to get ahead you got to be in universities and if the whole point of of um, of the exercise is getting ahead why would you risk a good recommendation or good grades or put yourself at um in a position where making people who could be helpful to you angry or people who could hurt you angry Uh, by uh, saying unpopular things when you're in the university. Um, That's not going to help you get ahead. That'll impede your getting ahead. And my response is too bad.
0: Hmm. You
1: know, be a man or woman, you know, step up, Um, have some courage. What's most important is your soul, your integrity, your character. And those are on the line when you're participating in the truth-seeking enterprise. And part of your job is to uphold it and not to to compromise it. So you owe it to your peers. You owe it to the institution that uh, you're attending and above all, you owe it to yourself. Well, perhaps above all, above all, you owe it to God, (laughs) but you certainly owe it to yourself to be the best person you can be. You you've got one life, right? Make the most of that, be the best person you can be. That's going to take courage. And that's going to take integrity. And you, you've got to exemplify that courage and you can't allow your integrity to be compromised even by pretending to believe what you don't believe or pretending not to believe what you do believe or going silent when you should be speaking your mind. Now choose your battles. Yes, I get that. I get that. That's fine. Choose your battles. Uh, it's not as if you have to go out and be a provocateur perhaps I've been too much of one. I'm not, (laughs) I'm not asking everybody to do exactly the way I've done it. but don't compromise your integrity, be a truth seeker, and be a truth speaker. That will enable you to construct the character that you will someday be proud of. You'll be proud to be who you are. Maybe, maybe, maybe it'll cause you problems. Maybe you won't get ahead or won't get ahead as fast. Maybe, maybe, maybe you will be. I know, as I said already, although I've been blessed, to have avoided the punishments others have received. I know others who've received those punishments, but I don't know a single one, including those who've experienced the most severe suffering as a result of their speaking their minds on controversial issues on college campuses and defying orthodoxies. I cannot think of a single one who says, you know, I regret doing it. I should have kept my head down and pretended to believe what I didn't believe because they emerged from that with something more important than getting ahead with their integrity. Hmm. They know who they are. They're not alien to themselves and they can be proud of themselves. We have students
0: all across the country right now who are getting ready to move on from their college campuses. It's graduation season. What advice do you have for, for these young men and women
1: going forward? Well, the advice I have is the advice my mother mother gave me. I can remember this. It's one of my earliest memories. My mother gave me on the day I went off to school when I was six years old, first day in school. I wasn't wasn't really eager to go to school. Uh, (laughs) But my dad was driving me to school. And uh, I, I, for some reason, I have an image of myself with a little jacket and bow tie. I didn't go to a school where we had that kind of (laughs) uniform, but anyway, I, they must have dressed me up that day or maybe I'm just making that up. But anyway, that's the image of my, have myself, but I do remember my mother hugging me and telling me to think for myself. She said, you know, think for yourself think for yourself and that's really my fundamental advice to students high school students who are entering college college students uh, who are now graduating and entering the world think for yourself there are a lot of people out there who want to do your thinking for you you know they 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 want and sometimes expect you to farm out your thinking <laughs> let somebody else do it for you you're supposed to fall in line with what somebody else believes some tribe or group or cause or or, or, or whatever it is uh, don't do that uh, again maintain your integrity and you do that by uh, by thinking for yourself think deeply think critically think for yourself that's that's my advice uh, be courageous it takes courage um, also have the virtue of humility don't be so sure that you're right about everything mm. have and, and those go together the courage and humility go together right so so if you're if you're if you're gonna be a truth seeker not just in college but now in life if you're gonna be a truth seeker if you're gonna be a person of integrity with respect to the truth then you're you're gonna to need to be humble enough to consider that you might be wrong and therefore be open to being challenged and also to have the courage to change your mind not just the courage again you know to face other people who might be hostile to you because of your beliefs but the courage to put at risk your own sense of yourself when it comes to allowing those identity forming, often tribally connected beliefs to be put on that table for your own scrutiny, not knowing whether you might in fact change your, change your mind and maybe by changing your mind, exclude yourself from circles in which you were previously, you know, a paid up card carrying fully respected member. <laughs> um, that's not easy. but it, and it takes and it takes courage. Even if there were no one else out there who was going to punish you, it would, it would take courage. because you know we get comfortable in our identities. We, and, and our beliefs do help to shape our identities. So asking someone to put them on the table, consider they might be wrong, possibly change your mind, is like asking them to be somebody else. That's a tough challenge. It does take courage. So be courageous. Now, of course, just now, as you and I are speaking, we're sending people out into a situation where we're in a public health crisis, uh, right. which has been the occasion of a massive economic dislocation. We don't know whether we're headed for merely a deep recession, which would be horrible enough, or a genuine uh, depression. It's going to be hard on uh, young men and women who are going out into the workforce. Now, even from places like Princeton, you know, that's, that's pretty powerful credential, and they're going to all do okay. But nobody uh, is going to be entirely um, immune from the consequences, the economic consequences of uh, this, or almost nobody, from the economic consequences of uh, the COVID-19 crisis. So it's going to take special courage. Tend to your interior life, your spiritual life. And and I say this whether you're religiously devout or not. uh, certainly, for those who are religiously devout, whether you're a Catholic, Protestant, Jewish, Muslim, Mormon, uh, whatever Hindu, Muslim, whatever whatever faith you are, uh, draw on the resources of that faith to build your interior life. The strength of your interior life is what will carry you through, and you got to tend to that. Uh, it, if you don't tend to that internal garden, it will be like a garden that's not properly tended out there on the uh, on the soil. <laughs> uh, they they go to seed and go to pot pretty fast. Uh, same with the interior life; it's got to be uh, tended to. Ask the great existential questions. Be a truth pursuer. Be open, but draw on the resources of your faith. Build your interior life. I think that's very important. And even if you're not a member of a traditional religion, or you're not religious in the in the normal sense, if you're someone more in the mode of Albert Camus, uh, a searcher and a seeker, uh, draw on the resources that are available to you, in co- including the resources of the great traditions of thought and faith, to build your interior life. Uh, it's not as if there are no resources for you if you're not you know, a communicant in a particular faith or a a parishioner of a particular church or anything, anything like that. But the interior is important. And if you don't do that, then you're going to get hung up on things that matter, but not all that much. And you'll neglect the things that really matter. The things that matter, but not all that much are things like power status, money, influence, those kinds of things. What David Brooks calls the CV virtues. Yeah, they matter. They're important. They're valuable things you can do with money, good things you can do with power. If you use your influence for good, that's a good thing. Uh, Having high status, if you use that high status to advance worthy causes, do good things. Yeah, that's fine. But those things, as I say, are derivative, secondary. They matter, but not all that much. What really matters? Well, if your values are straight, you realize if you've Tended your interior life, it will be clear to you that what matters are truth, family, friendship, faith, integrity, honesty, these virtues that David Brooks calls the tombstone virtues, the things that you're really looking back from the perspective of your imminent death, you will see... (laughs) Are the things that really mattered. And you will have, you would at that point, would wish that you would have tended more to those things and, and not prioritized wealth, status, money, power, influence, those kinds of prestige, those kinds of things.
0: Well, Professor George, there's so much more that we could discuss, but we're, we're out of time here. So thank you so much for joining us here on Madison's Notes, and we hope to have you back soon.
1: I look forward to it, Nino. Thank you.